You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. We're looking today at the end of the book of Genesis in a story around this character, Joseph. So if you'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 37, it's the first book in the Bible, and uh, 37 is the last story in Genesis. We're looking today at uh, this story, which is... Um, dramatic. It's a dramatic opening to a dramatic story. It's many highs and lows. It's a a great narrative, a great arc. It's amazing, really, what happens through this story. And today we're going to be looking, we're going to be looking at the subject of envy and comparison and bitterness, but also contentment. Contentment. Where is true contentment from? As we see in this picture, some quite astounding behavior. So I'm going to read most of the chapter Uh, Don't worry, it is very gripping, so it'll be interesting. And then I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at today's message. Chapter 37. Jacob, and I'll just explain, Jacob has been given the name Israel by God. So sometimes it refers to him as Israel, sometimes it refers to him as Jacob, but it's the same person. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And just to put you in the context, that is a good uh, eight or nine kilometers. It's quite a journey for a 17-year-old on his own. And a man found him wandering the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. 
Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. He said this that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe and the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. The chapter finishes with uh, Joseph's brothers taking this robe. They, they dip it in blood, animal blood, and take it back to their father and say, can you confirm this is Joseph's coat that you made him? Because we found it, and we think he's been devoured. And it ends with his father mourning and, and saying, yeah, it is his. He must have been devoured. He must have died. And he's in mourning, and his brothers achieve what they wanted. Father, we just thank you for a time of worship. We thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that uh, where your word is spoken, it doesn't come back fruitless. So Lord, we just thank you that we want to dig into your word and believe your gospel, believe what you say. We pray this morning, speak to us, or this afternoon, pray, speak to us, show us Jesus, show us your love for us, help us to understand, understand things about ourselves that you know better than we do. Help us to walk free into the light, out of shackles, out of brambles, out of things that we get stuck in. Lord Jesus, thank you you came to free us for freedom's sake. And we pray this morning, set us free. Help us to walk free. Help us to run free, to dance free, to sing and smile and shout. We are free people. Lord, do it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what a story it is. It is dramatic, as we've said. It's pretty harrowing when we think about what we've just read. A family of siblings who end up with horrendous behavior of selling their brother into slavery. Not before conspiring to kill him. Before that it was hatred and it, was, and it ended up with lies as well. Deceit, pretending that they, they were innocent of this. I don't know what you think of that. It's bizarre, isn't it? It's crazy. It's, good. it's easy for us in Genesis to think these stories are thousands of years old. How true can they really be? You know, how, how far removed we can take ourselves and think, yeah, maybe there's some interesting morals of the story in these sort of fables that we read. But really, we can remove ourselves. Well, actually, as believers in the Bible, it says in 2 Timothy 3 that the Bible is God-breathed. It's true. It's good for us to learn from where people will say, no, I'm, I, I don't just want to think that's an interesting story. I want to understand what God wants me to eat and drink from this. I want to see what my nourishment is. And that tends to be, as we read the Bible, we understand what is God's heart towards man? What is God like? 
And what is man's heart towards God like? And where do we understand what God has done and what God is doing, what God is like with people? And as we read this story, we see again and again what God is like with people and what man is like towards God and towards each other. And when we understand these things and what Jesus has done, we are able to walk out of, as we've been learning about this morning, walk out of barbed wire and things that hold us back and things that uh, they shackle us. This story is heavy, isn't it, to think of a family that would do that. But as I say, it's not completely removed from reality. It's not because it's a true story. But even today, we might think, that's very old. I mean, we don't know anything like that today. Well, maybe don't do this, but if you were to Google sibling murder, I'm afraid it's very real. Stuff like this still happens. I've got three brothers, and thank goodness that nothing like this has happened with me. But I grew up with three brothers, and uh, it just seems so bizarre to think this actually happens. There's this much hatred. I love growing up with brothers and sisters. I mean, we got in fights sometimes. I remember one time getting so cross, throwing a, uh, the remote control at my brother, and it missed him, and it smashed the window behind him. And that was probably about as violent as it got in my household. We certainly didn't try and kill each other, and I didn't ever try and sell any of my brothers. It just seems so abstract, doesn't it, for us? But we must stop and try and understand, God, what can I learn here that you want to teach my heart, that you want to help me understand and bring me into line with? What, what can we pick up from this story? Well, we can look at the hearts of each of these characters. I mean, people don't just have difficult things happen to them and then immediately plot to kill someone. There's a cause, isn't there? A cause and effect principle in life where something happens and there's an effect. But there's something about the way that humans respond to things where there's something going on between the cause and effect. There's our interpretation in between. There's our process. How have we processed what's happened? So yes, uh, Joseph was a difficult brother in some ways. He kept saying, behold, all the time. That's enough to make you want to kill someone. He was difficult, and he was frustrating, and, he, and he, he had his father's favor, and he had this coat of many colors, and that could be explained by, um, it's a kind of royalty coat. It's not just about favor, but uh, Jacob had had a promise over him, handed down to him from Abraham and Isaac, that God would bring royalty from his blood, and even a renewed promise that it would be from his actual blood. So not just talking about his eventual descendants, but saying from your blood will be royalty. And so it may well have been that he gave this royal kind of jacket, coat to his son, because he favoured him and thought, this is a son who's he's bright, he's clever, he's, he, he could be the one. And so he favoured this son, and his son was also a bit of a, a telltale. He told on his brothers when they hadn't behaved themselves. And he had these dreams that uh, it's not just... <laughs> So what's important for us before we start to move on to the envy and think about envy and try to understand it is the legitimacy of some of the envy that they had. I mean, maybe it wasn't right the way that they definitely wasn't right the way they behaved, but you understand where the envy would have come from. If you know your father dotes and loves and lifts up your brother. I mean, look at the wording it uses here. It says, in uh, verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons. It doesn't even say, now Joseph was Israel's favorite. It doesn't say, 
Israel loved Joseph the most. It says it even more personal than that. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons. Do you get how, you know, you can even feel the, this is personal. This is painful. This is something that it would have hurt them. We are second rate and our father loves this one. That's painful. And some of you might be sitting there and thinking, do you know what? I know exactly what that's like. That might be your experience growing up. It might be your experience now. You think, my dad seems to love my sister more than me. Maybe you felt like a sort of black sheep of the family. Maybe you you felt like, I don't feel like I'm accepted. And it does cause you to envy siblings. Or it does cause you to to hold on to something which which I've, I've called this envy and its fruit. Because it's a seed that goes in that if we nurture envy... If we water it by stirring ourselves up and and mulling over it and processing it the way that our hurt dictates, then we end up bearing fruit that is bitterness and hatred. And theirs goes even further to scheming. So we've got this, yeah, maybe legitimate reasons to feel spurned and hurt. But what they do with that, what they do with that pain is the important thing. What we do with our pain, I was telling my son this week, he came home from school and he was upset because PE had been difficult. He hadn't won and he was really gutted and it wasn't fair and the other kids were laughing whenever they scored. And I said something along the lines of, that is really painful, but what's more important than what happened is how you respond to what happened. And that you could say that of anything in life. It's important how we respond is a big deal. They, they nurture this envy. And I was thinking as I was preparing this as well, and I want us to hear this as a church, we've got to be careful how we use our words. We've got to be so careful because it says in here once or twice, his brothers said to him, or they said among them, they conspired. It was encouraged envy. They encouraged it among themselves. It didn't just happen on its own. No one, well, Reuben was half decent, Tried to stand up for him. But someone didn't say, hey, don't call him a dreamer. He's our brother. And we've got to understand, Proverbs is clear. Through the Bible, it's clear. Words have power. And in our church, when we hear each other with biting comments or negative comments, that's an opportunity for us to either shut our mouths and not join in, or maybe at times to say, hey, come on. Come on, let's love them. I maybe agree with you, that was irritating. I don't know why they said that, but come on, let's, let's love this person. We've got to be so careful with our words because that's another way of feeding this seed of envy. Oh, they agree with me. Good, now I've got justified envy. We justify it with others. We've got to be careful with this. So there's this dramatic opening, these um, brothers and their hearts going back. If we look at it, it started with this rejection from their father this pain of why is he the special one? And actually, if you look at it even more, you think it could be, it's not just the father's rejection, but we're a family who've been brought up with the promises of God. And now suddenly it seems like he's the one with the promises of God. It's not just the pain of a rejection of my, my earthly father, but it seems like God's more interested in him. You ever know that feeling? It's really difficult when you think, why does everything seem to go well for them? God seems to love them more than he loves me. And then perhaps they're going through these sorts of questions and frustrations. And 
and without sticking to the truth, without coming back to, no, wait, wait a second, that's not what God says. God says, I am the God of your fathers, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I, I, what does that mean? Does that mean he's not my God because he's Abraham's God? No, it means I'm the same God as their God. I'm consistent. I'm a gracious, loving God. I haven't changed. I've started to have favorites. I've got different things going on for different ones of you. And they've not processed it well to the extent where now they're caught up with envy. And it comes out with this horrible concoction of lies and deceit and trying to decide, shall we kill him? Shall we sell him? I mean, it's horrible, isn't it, to think at one point they said, one of the brothers says, hey, wait, if we kill him, we we won't get any profit from that. We could actually sell him. We'll get some profit. Ouch. I mean, that's horrible, isn't it? Horrible to think that sort of stuff goes on in the world today. People selling other people. It's not right. And it's come from a place of something evil that has been watered and nurtured. So we're going to look at envy in particular because it is one of these things that it has fruit. And Psalm 73 is a helpful, it's almost a a picture of envy, a case study of envy. And I'll just uh, uh, paraphrase a few of the phrases from it. This is the psalmist, it's not David, it's another psalmist, and he says, I envy, he's talking to God, I envy the arrogant, he says. And he's not talking about, I envy their arrogance, I want to be arrogant. No, he's just describing them, God, I envy the arrogant, and then he goes on to say, their bodies are healthy and sleek. So what's he envying? He's envying uh, looking good and healthiness. He says, they increase in wealth, so he's envying their money. They are not plagued by common ills, so they don't seem to suffer. They don't seem to have things coming difficult in their life. Things come easy to them. And as we look at Psalm 73, and we can see it in Joseph's brothers, we understand envy is to want somebody else's life. At the heart of it, envy is to want someone else's life. I want what they've got. I want their experience. I want their, the way they're valued. I can't stand it that they get something that I don't get. You see someone else, their blessing, and instead of rejoicing over the good they have, you weep over the good they have because you don't have it. And what's more, with envy, it it tends to be, not only do I not have it, but I think I deserve it more than them. They don't really deserve it. I feel like I deserve it. And bitterness starts to grow. And envy goes further than wanting someone else's life. It actually moves into resentment. We resent people's lives. We can be tempted to begrudge them of their lives. And we look at the polar end opposites here, that praise is rejoicing in other people's lives, being happy for them, rejoicing in their skill, their ability, their blessings of their life, as we're called to do to uh, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We're called to be like that, to praise and honor each other, lifting each other up. But envy is at the other end, and it's hating and getting angry about and resenting the lives of others. That's the opposite of praise. So envy is being unhappy with other people's happiness. And in reverse, Envy, and we'll probably feel a little bit of a sting here when I say this, envy means that if people who you see above you fall down, you feel satisfied. Ah, I feel good about that when they messed up or they fell or they made a mistake. 
the basis of that is envy. Makes us feel better about ourselves. Envy weeps because others are rejoicing and rejoices when others are weeping. So we see this as a serious thing. Serious. Yes, the Bible warns us seriously about envy, so we need to take it seriously. It might be easy for us to think, oh, come on, it's not a big deal, envy. We all envy. Yeah, but it can rot. It says in Proverbs something along the lines of envy, envy rots our bones. So I'm going to look at four reasons why we should deal with it, if we haven't already come to that conclusion. Hopefully you have. But there are four specific reasons explaining why we should deal with it. Number one, it hides itself. Envy hides itself. It's not easy for us to admit that we are envious people. It's not, a, it's not something we're quick to admit, possibly because it's such a petty thing. And it's such a small thing. It shows how self-centered we are when we feel envy towards somebody else. I just don't like it that they're doing well. Have you ever seen that maybe on a sitcom or something on TV when someone breaks up with a girlfriend and they say, I don't want to be with her, but I don't want her to be with anyone else. I don't actually want that, but I don't want her to be happy without me. Envy does that where it's ugly, it's petty, it's self-centered. And in Psalm 73, it says, My heart was grieved by injustice and unfairness. That doesn't sound petty, does it? That doesn't sound like envy. But he goes on to say, and that became bitter resentment. It started out as, this is an injustice. This is not fair. I'm, I'm within my rights to be frustrated about this. But he knows that became bitterness. That became envy. That became ugly. We don't see it for what it really is, sometimes until it's festered. Envy hides itself because, in part, it's humiliating and we don't like to admit that we partake in it. Perhaps we can think about some scenarios that might help us to to gauge, is this something that I'm struggling with in general, or is it something I'm struggling with maybe in a specific case? For example, is there a person in your life that, if you're honest, you know you find them irritating And you tend to be hypercritical of them. And it might not be out loud, it might not be to others, but you just know in your head, I tend to drag them down. I don't like it when they're praised. I don't like it when they succeed. It gets to me. Something about that person, it frustrates me, gets to me when they do well. Ask yourself, is it possible that beneath that irritation is envy? Is it true, perhaps, that you need to find something to critique about them? You need to find something wrong with them so you can feel better. Sadly, this is actually, I think, true of the British culture. I know that there are many nationalities in here, and we're not all British, but we live in a British society, and it's sadly part of our culture that we don't tend to raise up. We tend to pull people down to feel better about ourselves in the press and all sorts of things. Someone might have their five minutes of fame, and we'll be very quick to say, oh, you're having your five minutes of fame, are you? going to come to an end. We don't like people to succeed and, and go above us. We like the underdog because they don't threaten us. And it's something of our culture which is not Christ-centered that as Christians we need to redeem, walk free from. Another example could be more general that some of us, are, maybe you, you can relate to this, you tend to be someone that pities yourself quite a lot. Self-pity, unhappy with the way that life is going, 
unhappy with your lot, perhaps you find you're quite often quite sour. Is it possible that it's a kind of pervasive envy where you envy the lives of almost everybody else? Sometimes I hear myself countering the praise that somebody has given to somebody else. Just gently, you know, just, you know, not being horrible, but I'm a bit threatened by the praise I hear someone giving to someone else, and I might just say, yeah, they are great at that, aren't they? It's a shame they're just not so great at this. Level it out a little bit, and then I feel a little bit better. You recognize that in yourself sometimes? Why am I doing that? You've got to see if there's envy in yourself. Surely we know the times when, when actually uh, maybe you see in the paper somebody who is perhaps quite well-known, wretched, nasty person, bad reputation. They fall and they make some mistake. They get in trouble and you think, I'm glad. They deserve it. Justice. And in a sense, that's understandable because justice should be served. But here's a horrible thing. There are times when someone you like, someone you admire and respect, someone you love, maybe someone in your family, they screw up and they fall somehow and you find it comforting. You don't find it distressing. You don't mourn for them. You feel some comfort. There's that leveling out, that comparison that I thought, oh, actually, perhaps I am doing a bit better than I thought I was. I haven't made that mistake. And you can find you're more self-focused than you are about caring for that other person. That's envy. Envy really has a souring effect on life. So number one, envy hides. It goes unnoticed. It goes undetected. And as it does, it has a souring effect, which brings us to the second reason we must deal with it. Second reason is envy sucks the life out of us. It sucks the joy out of our own life more than almost anything else. You see others enjoying life and you, your response is, I hate it. I can't deal with it. Everyone else seems to be okay. I'm not okay. Everyone else seems to be happy. I haven't got that. And it sucks joy out of yourself. Writer Joseph Epstein says this about the seven deadly sins. Giving in to sloth and laziness is rather pleasant. Giving in to loss of temper entails a release that is not without its small delights. And lust, greed, and pride bring quite a bit of pleasure for quite a long time. Only envy is absolutely no fun at all. Draining all joy from you from its very first moment. We've all felt envy's desperate, deep, soul-destroying, lacerating stabs. It's a lose-lose. Nobody wins from envy. You can be envious of somebody. They're getting on with their life happily. You're upset for the both of you. It's a, it's a complete waste of time, and it sucks life from us. Why does it suck life from us? Well, because it poisons our ability to enjoy the life that we have. Number three. We've got to understand and we've got to deal with envy because it poisons our ability to enjoy the life we have. To enjoy and be grateful for the things that we have. Tim Keller says that envy could be called comparisonitis. Just constantly comparing, how are you doing? How am I doing? How are they doing? I haven't got that. They are, I haven't got that. How are they getting in there? How did they get into that place? All the time thinking about what's going on compared to what I'm receiving. Comparisonitis. Comparison itself is not always bad, but if comparison and envy have a grip on you, you know that nothing seems to be good enough. 
I thought I was doing well, and then I saw that person, they're doing better, and now I'm miserable again. You know, I thought I was having a good day, and then I saw that person, they were having a great day. And I think, oh, why can't I have a great day? We, are just, we just can't win. Nothing's good enough. You never seem to be able to stop and be grateful for what is in front of you. You can't seem to sit and savor the moment. I've got to be careful online sometimes. I go on Twitter sometimes, and I, there's one or two specific people that I, I'd have to be careful because I think, I wish I had your gifting. So impressive, these people. Their brains work so well. That's something I struggle with. I just think, I haven't got very much capacity. I get tired quickly. I get, I get sidetracked and start thinking about cartoons and stuff. Like this person, how do they have that capacity? They know like seven languages and they, they've read every book in the world and they can explain it so eloquently. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking about Mario Kart or something. <laughs> Thank God. I have to try to say, God, this in part is how you've made me. That capacity is maybe how you've made me. I need to be happy with that. You've made me this way. It's a, it's a battle between gratitude and dissatisfaction. God, I'm grateful for what you have given me. I'm not dissatisfied with my lot. I'm grateful. And perhaps that's a, a bit of a self-reflection you can do right now. What tends to define you more if you were to ask someone close to you, your spouse or a, gr- a close friend, say, what, or maybe you just know this yourself if you self-reflect, what do I seem to reflect more? Dissatisfaction with life? Or gratitude for life? Am I grateful for my lot? Am I grateful that I've got a God who knows what he's doing with my life better than I know what I'm doing? And he's in control. And maybe things don't all go my way, but he's in control. This is an incredible picture of Joseph that we see in his story. Somehow, this horrible stuff happens to him. And I was you know, talking to someone about this yesterday, thinking, you know, I have tiny little injustices happen to me and I almost fall apart. How on earth was that fair? Didn't, why, why would you let that happen, God? God, you must hate me. You're not even here. You don't even know what you're doing. Sulk about stuff. Joseph was, was sold into slavery. And later on, we see other betrayals happen to him. He goes to prison. And what does he manage to do throughout? Acknowledge, God, you know what you're doing. God, you're in control. God, you've got promises over my life. And he manages to somehow incredibly come right through to a place of proving God's faithfulness. Trusting God over circumstance. Being somehow grateful. I'm sure he had moments, don't get me wrong. I'm sure he had moments where he must have thought, what on earth am I doing in a pit? What have I done to deserve this? This isn't having stars and moon bowing down to me. How did this happen? I'm sure he had moments, but it tells us in the story that the overarching story of him was is to prove God's faithfulness, to trust God. So we don't want to compare ourselves to others and envy letting it poison us by destroying our ability to appreciate what we are and what we have. Our culture plays into this because adverts and advertising it plays on envy it wants us to envy the beautiful and the rich so that we buy things so we often seeing adverts on tv or on, or any bus stop that you drive past or magazine you see beauty 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 you go home you look in the mirror and you think hmm. what's coming i'm not i don't compare i'm envious they're toying on envy as a marketing strategy we're bombarded with pictures all the time 
So we buy what they want us to buy through envy. And people hate the way they look and their own limitations. Envy has got in there. It's poisonous. Envy and comparison feeds dissatisfaction, which creates all sort of deep emotional problems. It's so sad, isn't it, to see the increase of, of mental health problems all over the place. We're all struggling with different things. And see, well, look at how society works. It plays on this stuff all the time. And then we think, oh, look, everyone's struggling because they don't measure up to what society is saying you have to measure up to. All this envy that can come in, it can really birth deep emotional problems. And it comes right from the beginning, right from the very start. Adam and Eve were in the garden with God. It could not have been better. They had access to all the incredible fruits and plants. They were able to name the animals. There was no sin. There was no darkness. There was no pain, no suffering, no illness. It was incredible. But it was amazing. They they were in perfect paradise. And what, what happened? It wasn't good enough for them. It wasn't good enough for them because suddenly there was a comparison that was offered to them by the enemy. Hey, have you seen that you haven't got what God's got? Envy drove them to realize we haven't got what we could have. I'm suddenly dissatisfied with paradise. Wow, isn't that terrible? To be dissatisfied with the paradise. Christians, we must, we must dwell on what we have in Christ. We must Meditate on the beautiful riches, the wonderful riches that we have in Christ. Lest we repeat this dissatisfaction that Adam and Eve could have in paradise. We've got to be careful because envy poisons our ability to enjoy the life that we've been given. And fourth, lastly, we need to deal with envy because if we see what we envy, we understand our own heart. We can use envy as a, as a tool to help us to gauge, what am I actually living for? If I, if, I come, if I live my life before God, there's a phrase called quorum Deo. Not sure if you know that one. It means living before the face of God. All of life is lived before the face of God. In his presence, that we know God is, is with us and we find our life and our being in him. But we don't like that as humans. We find that um, offensive because we don't want to be subject to a God we want to be, be able to do whatever we want to do. So we, in turn, instead, we decide to live before the face of other things. We live before the face of other people's approval. We live before the face of uh, money, career, or achievement. We put other things in our lives that we orbit around instead of orbiting around God. Instead of having him central, we, we put other things in that central position. We build our identity on things, a claim. Career, achievement, maybe even self-actualization. That's what I'm really looking for. I want to find my true self and love myself. We build identity on these things. And Soren Kierkegaard said, if you want to understand what you're building your identity on other than God, what you look to for your justification, for your existence, figure out your envies. That's what he, he recommended. If you, if you want to know what you're looking to to justify your very existence, then figure out what do you get envious about? What do you get upset when it's taken away from you? What do you get annoyed that other people have that you don't have? So we can use envy as a tool to study our heart, to understand what am I living for? 
For example, if you are into sport, you're really into sport, and you give it your best, and maybe you've done sport at some level, but you're, you have friends that have gone further than you in sport. They've played at a higher level than you, and they get better acclaim, and people praise them, and, and they're doing better than you. How do you feel about that? It all depends on how you're relating to God. If you're living before God as the center, then sport is wonderful and important perhaps, maybe even critical in a way, but you still admire those who are doing better than you and you can rejoice with them because it's not giving me my identity. It's not what I stand on. It's not what I put my hope in. And I can rejoice with people who are much better than me. And I can praise them without feeling some sense of uh, defensiveness. But if sport is what you're living before and what gives you purpose, then you'll not be able to be happily admiring somebody who is doing better than you. You'll resent them. If you look to anything other than the fact that God delights in you to justify your existence and give you peace and joy then you're going to be drained by envy your whole life. If God's not satisfying you, then something else will be. And if somebody else has more of that something else, you will be crushed by envy. You'll be thinking, it's not fair. I've given my whole life to this thing. That person just tries and they do it. And everything will just feel crushing when you see someone else doing better in the field that you're giving yourself to. But this beautiful thing that we're going to finish with is that that's impossible with God. It's impossible to compare levels of commitment that God has to us, levels of success, as it were, with God. None of us are fully living before God. We're often distracted by all sorts of things that that vie for our attention, they vie for our hope and our trust and our love. When we look to other things, we're filled with envy and we're drained of the joy and life that could be ours, but only he can give. So lastly, we're just going to say, where do we take our envy? Where do we take our envy? What do we do with it? Well, we've got to take our envy, as we would tell you every week. We take our sin, we take our insecurities, we take our pain to God the Father through Jesus. We take it to Jesus. And when we go to Jesus, in in we're thinking about uh, envy, and we're thinking about comparison, and we're thinking about pain of not having what, we want to have at times or what we think we deserve or what we think other people seem to just get without even trying much we look at one who is a father who had a favorite son of his own god the father dotes on his son loves his son jesus it says at at jesus baptism here's my beloved son in whom i'm well pleased god the son and god the father are enraptured with each other they love each other He is his favorite. He is his son, his only son. He's the one who he would, as it were, make a coat for and say, you're going to be royalty. I'm going to lift you up. You're going to be seated at my right hand. It's all going to go to you. And what does he do with this son, this favored, loved son? What does he do with him? He gives him to us. Gives him to us. That's how much we can understand. I don't have to be a person that is ruled by jealousy and comparison. I've been given the greatest thing that could ever be given to me. There's nothing else that compares to this. He gave up his son for your sake. 
as a picture. Um, Joseph is a picture, is a foreshadowing of this Jesus who was given up. And G- Joseph, at the end of his life, said, what the devil meant for harm, what the enemy meant for harm, the Lord meant for good and for the saving of many lives. Jesus is the greater Joseph. What, what the enemy meant for harm, God meant for good for the saving of many lives. This is what offered to us at the, in the gospel in, of what Jesus has done for us. And I love the way that Joseph uh, paints this picture in his life. I'm going to, spoiler alert here. I'm going to tell you something that happens at the end. At the end of the story, Joseph is able to forgive his brothers. Not only does he forgive them, he, he gives them a new home. He gives them food. He makes sure they're set up for life. The very ones that sold him into slavery, the very ones that conspired to kill him, he gave himself for. And he restored them. He forgave them. And it says in Matthew 27 that when Pontius Pilate, at Jesus' trial, he was saying, I find no fault in this man. I find nothing wrong with him. That uh, they handed him over to him out of envy. It says that. In Matthew 27, they handed him over out of envy. It's the same thing, out of envy. This, this same story is happening centuries later because Joseph was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Out of envy, his brothers handed him over. And then what does Jesus say on the cross? Does he say, Father, get them. Get them. Justice is what I want. Does he have an envious heart that they would get away with something? No, in love and grace, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And it's a picture, again, we see this in Joseph's story where he's restored them. He's forgiven them. He hugs and kisses them, embraces them. And we see this God's heart for us who may maybe uh, we know, I've been envious. I'm an envious person. I'm a bitter person. I need forgiveness. Well, the very one who's able to forgive you gave himself so that you could be forgiven. And where do you take that envy? Where do you take that bitterness? How do you change that? Well, you see that if God, it says in Romans 8, if God did not spare his own son, how will he not with him also give me all things? Why am I worried about what that person's life looks like? Why am I worried about what they've got? Why am I, why am I frustrated when they get praised? I've been given the son of God. I've been given new life in God. He's totally overwhelmed me. And why did he give himself? So that we could be adopted, so that we could be placed in him. The father has a favorite son, but he doesn't say, and all you others, you can, you know, you can push off. No, do you know what it says in the Bible? He was crucified, rose to new life so that we could find new life in him. In him. So that we're not the second-rate sons and daughters. We are equal with Christ. Have you understood that? This one he dotes on, this one he, he absolutely loves, his beloved son. He says, I send him to his death so that you could be in him, so you could be united with Christ. Not under him, not above him, you're united with Christ. This is what it is to be in Christ. Me and uh, Esme, my wife, we were chatting to a couple a few months back, and they had adopted um, their second child. Their first one was biological, and their second one was adopted. And uh, there was, it was a great conversation with them. It was really lovely because they were very honest. And the father said, do you know what? I was really worried that when we adopted, I wouldn't love the, the adopted child in the same way as much as I, uh, as I love my biological daughter. And he said, but it was only within a few weeks I realized it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. And I just thought, oh, Father, thank you. That's how it is for me in Christ. I've been adopted, but not so that I can sort of, you know, 
hold on to Jesus' coattails. Can I come in as well? No, I'm in him. As much as he's loved, I'm loved. Why do I need to be jealous about anything? Why do I need to hold on to envy, but I haven't got what that person's got? We're talking about you're in Christ. You couldn't have it any better. There's no one better than the other. There's no one that has a secret access to God that nobody else has. We have the same access through the same blood, through the same bread, through the same Christ. So it's impossible for God to favor some others over some others. We, don't, we can let that just still our hearts when we think, oh, I don't have their gifting. Or oh, it doesn't seem like I'm as loved by God as they are. Come to the table and remember, thank you, Jesus. We all come through the same one. There's no threat to me. God has given me what he's given me. And one of the things he's given me is Christ. I want to be such a grateful man of God. I want to be such a, I want to be a man whose, whose life is marked by celebration. And we want to be a church who are marked by celebration. That we know who we've been given. We've been given the Son of God. How could we be anything but grateful? We don't deserve what we've been given. It's so important that we meditate on that. We meditate on when, when I'm in that moment of thinking, I'm just caught up in envy right now. I'm bitter. I'm frustrated. This person has got something I don't have to remember. Wait a second. If God wouldn't spare his own son, I need to remember he's not withholding anything from me. He's not withholding from me. I can be gracious, I can be grateful, I can be confident in what God has given me. Amen? Amen. We're going to be a celebratory people, thanking God, grateful people. Father, we thank you for your son. Thank you for Jesus. We thank you that, uh, how could we complain that we haven't got something when you've given us your very, very, very best? You've given us of your beloved so that we could be in him, so that we could know the same love directed at us. That is directed at Jesus. We could know the same assurance that Jesus knows. How do I know I'm going to heaven? Because I'm in him. How do I know I'm loved? Because I'm in him. How do I know I'm not going to be judged? Because I'm in Jesus. Not because of my performance. I'm confident because I'm in the beloved. In the beloved. Thank you for that, Father. Help us to stand secure and strong. Help us to break free from things that would hold us back poison us. Help us to be a people who are more marked by praise and honor of each other than we are of dragging people down. Oh God, you have done a miraculous work that frees us from all of those things. We want to stand in it. Thank you, Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.